From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap You could build yourself a homemade scratching machine Or use a piece from your chest set Go ahead, grab the queen Scratch like a DJ with your record player A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways Thanks to scratchers from the California lottery A little play can make your day Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Oh. 
And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is Grammy-nominated Rob Sheridan. He's a writer, director, graphic designer, and artist. You probably know him from his extensive work as the art director for Nine Inch Nails, where he created some of their iconic album covers and live tour visuals. He also helped co-write the Year Zero alternate reality game, and perhaps most notoriously, as a teenager, helped bring the Uga Chaka Baby to cultural <laughs> significance. His latest work is the DC Vertigo comic High Level, which will be released in a collected edition paperback on February 5th in comic book stores in comic book stores and everywhere else on February 11th. Welcome to the show, Rob. This is Thank so you. Exciting. It's nice to be here. Yes. We're really excited to, to talk with you. Um yeah. and and while we don't really have to dwell on this, I would be remiss if on a <laughs> podcast called Scarred for Life that I didn't ask you about <laughs> motherfucking cats. Oh my god. Yes. Rob. That, that uh, tweet thread was everything. I that's now the thing that I'm most famous for, by the way. So you, sh- you should have just led with that because <laughs> I I I can't oh, yeah. believe how far that reached as getting texts from random old friends just being like dude this popped up on my facebook like uh, it was all over and now people are like hey man i don't know who you are but your cat's thing is funny so i'm following you now i'm like okay <laughs> well i i guess i just I put that at the top wow. of my uh, biography now <laughs> there you go i should have led with that yeah yeah but, um yeah it was uh it was not something I recommend, honestly. <laughs> so, for our listeners who, for whatever reason, don't know, you decided to take uh, shrooms, yes. and go see cats. Yes. <laughs> I, How far did you make it? That's so brave. I can't believe you even, like tried to do that. Like wandered into public. I'm impressed. Well, I I uh, I wouldn't have tried to do it without uh, my wife Steph by my side, who uh, who. You know, I knew it would pull me out if things got too too intense. <laughs> I made it an hour, I made it an hour and thirteen minutes before she pulled me out. Then uh, that was with one bathroom oh. break to just go and be alone in a stall and just breathe <laughs> for a few minutes. Oh, I know that bathroom break was the best part. I was reading that and you're like just, freaking out. It was the, the it was the best feeling to be in a quiet place and, and it locked in a little box where no cats could scream at me and throw their crotches in my face. <laughs> Oh my god! I still have to see cats, but I cannot even imagine like seeing that when you were. I I don't know if I'd recommend it under any state, but. uh... (laughs) But I, you know what? I'm I'm glad for the experience. Is as terrifying as it was. (laughs) And what a uh, a good wife to to have to be able to be there for you and pull you out (laughs) when she knows shit's gonna hit the fan. She's very patient. Um, so I guess kind of moving away from cats. Um, so please. <laughs> so a good portion of your art is focused on the macabre and horror. Yes. Um, thinking particularly of the Christmas image of presents opening human kids, <laughs> um, which is phenomenal. It's um, so good. Have you always been interested in horror? Um, yeah, I mean, when I was um, when I was a kid, I. For whatever reason, I was uh, I was always drawing, just drawing, drawing, drawing all the time, and I was for whatever reason drawn more and more towards weird and and dark things. I and I was very lucky that my mom didn't put me in therapy because I remember in middle school I would have all these drawings of like guys being ripped apart and dismembered and like torture chambers and spikes through people's heads, and I I was a like really like like pretty well adjusted like 
kid with a good childhood. Like, I didn't have any trauma. I wasn't expressing my inner <laughs> demons. I just thought it was cool to just have really scary and horrific and gory stuff. And those were the movies that I loved too. Like, I mean, I grew up in the, in the eighties when like, you know, the best gore effects were happening. And I thankfully had a, I had divorced parents and a divorced dad is really good for seeing R-rated movies when you're a kid. <laughs> okay. Yes, it is. It really, really is. Because I, like my dad, because my parents were divorced, I showed me so many movies yeah. I would have never seen. I, I've, I'm, I'm a horrifically young age, but still, like, some divorce is good for something. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back now at some of the movies that I remember loving as a kid. I mean, like, um, Robocop, for example. Oh, God, and then, yeah. and, and then I, I look back and, like, I... I look at the year, it was like 1987, and I remember seeing it in the theater with my dad and be like, yeah, Robocop, oh, and I was seven years old, and now I look, I look <laughs> at that movie now, and I'm like, holy shit, man, okay, no wonder I just got into gore and everything real fast, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad for it, I, it's made, uh, it makes life so much more interesting when you're into horror, I think. I would agree, I definitely agree. I completely agree. Um, so, did, how did you first get introduced into horror? Was it through movies, or... Some people, it's like through books and literature and stuff. Um, I think for me, it was it was definitely movies. I mean, um, yeah. the the more I was like willing to push on what I would watch, you know, I, I, I thankfully I had a dad who didn't really screen much of what I chose at Blockbuster. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so there was some stuff that I was like terrified of, but fascinated by. And, and so I'd try to just rent the the worst movies I could get away with and um that really that really kind of conditioned me at at a young age to just really be into all that kind of stuff yeah I I think uh growing up um because you and I are about are close to the same age um I was born in 81 um so but like I I think people miss out on on the going through like the horror section and and just staring at the uh the evocative art on the covers of the the, the movies and like yeah. making it up in your mind the what is going on here and if you have parents like mine that were would flip-flop between letting you watch movies and not it was like you had built up some of these movies just based on the art alone oh totally and usually it was a huge disappointment with a lot of those <laughs> low budget ones where there's like some phenomenal scene of a creature on the front and then the creature shows up for like five minutes at the end yep. yeah i'm thinking in particular of like deep star six that was a movie that for whatever reason my parents would not let me see when I was a kid. And the, the, the cover of it is like this this guy in a um, diving suit and he's like ripped in half and he's just floating there. <laughs> and I remember going, oh, my God, what is this movie? And then I saw it when I was adult and I was like, this movie is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me after this, I'll I'll send you some of the um, the gore art that I drew in, in like when I was like 13. Okay. Uh, I, I scanned I scan some of it years back. So I've got it. You, you'll uh, You'll appreciate it. It's also like, it's also like tons and tons of really buff shirtless dudes for some reason. Oh. <laughs> so, oh. I like so, that. <laughs> yeah, that was, for some reason, that was that was another theme. I don't know why. Um, but, Just figuring yourself out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, the yeah on the on the topic of VHS covers that that was a unique thrill that doesn't exist today. I have a whole book, a fantastic book that's just VHS cover art. Oh yeah, I've uh, seen that. I've been looking at that on Amazon. I've been wanting to and I recommend it. It's fantastic to flip through and it and it reminds you of a golden age of when that was the only thing often that they had to sell you on, you know. Right. So you had to make it as crazy as possible and there's so much fantastic art in all of it. I remember cuz I I'm um 
a decent amount younger than Terry, um, <laughs> but still old enough to have been able to go to Blockbuster as a kid. Mm-hmm. And that was the best part, like, was getting freaky. Like, I liked, like, scanning the horror section for, like, the weirdest art and, like, trying to, like, hide from my parents. Because, like, with Blockbuster, you had, like, the cover art, but then there's the DVDs behind it that had the plastic. Mm-hmm. So I would always sneak it and be like, oh, it's fine, guys. It's Don't worry about oh, it. Oh, yeah, nice. Nice trick. Yeah, you'd, I'd be like, oh, it, it's totally fine. And they're like, okay. Um, what? <laughs> I can't remember. I did that so many times. And, like, my, my mom, my dad didn't do it as much, but my mom got to the point where she would have to, like, go find the cover. Uh. And I also had younger brothers, and like my, I was, I had a little bit more leniency in what I could watch, but like my little brothers knew that I could, so they would like sneak in while I was watching stuff. So, yeah, I miss that though. I mean, yeah. like that's why I still love like being able to find like a local like used DVD yeah. store. I know it's not exactly the same, but it's like physical. Well, media the other the other thing about it was something I talked about with regards to music um, recently, but it was the same with movies where. You know, you got to choose your movie, or a couple movies maybe, if you were lucky, at Blockbuster that weekend. And if it sucked, you're going to yeah. watch it anyway. There was no, there was no like, starting a yep. thing on Netflix and being like, eh, it sucks, I'm changing it after ten minutes. You, that, that's your movie, and you're going to watch <laughs> the damn thing, you know? And there's probably yep. a lot of movies that, if I started them now, I'd be like, eh, I don't want to watch this, that I sat through when I was a kid, and... Uh, and I ended up appreciating them for it, you know. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's, it's we've gone to such a um, an onslaught of, of media that it's it. I, there's a lot of movies that I probably would have missed out on as well. I'm thinking <laughs> it's like triggering memories of watching of like going to Blockbuster and grabbing ten horror movies and having like parties at at someone's house when I was growing yeah. up and watching like <laughs> Jack Frost. Jack Frost. The, oh my god! <laughs> the terrible, terrible. <laughs> My fav- my favorite was on Halloween, where like we would go to Blockbuster and rent all these movies, and then we never got carded. Like, you, I didn't even like card you for rated our movies because like, I was so used to renting them without my parents. And then one Halloween, we got carded, and I couldn't rent any of the rated R movies. So like I could, we were trying to rent American Werewolf in London, and we couldn't watch it. Wow, because Ooh. we got carded, which I like again had never experienced, but like wild, wow, wild. Anyway. So um, it, it's crazy to me to think that while I was listening to Nine Inch Nails as a teenager, you were transitioning as a fan to working for Trent on on his website. How how did it all come about? Um, well, when I was in high school, I was um, really into computers and, and technology. And so as soon as I was able to uh, you know get a computer of my own, I started just teaching myself everything I could, um, graphics, programming, mm-hmm. and, and getting online and and the the wonderful wild west of the early internet which i still miss and just exploring that and um i started to teach myself html because i wanted to make um, a website and learn how to do it and at the time it was like what are you going to make a website of well you just make it for whatever your favorite thing was you know so i made a my favorite band at the time this would have been about 96 or something 95 96 um, was Nine Inch Nails, so I, I made a web page for Nine Inch Nails, you know, a fan site, and um, really took the opportunity to learn how to make graphics, put them into web pages, and and it's you know it was very hideous and nineties looking, <laughs> looking back on it, <laughs> but it looked cool at the time for for sixteen year old me, and it became one of the one of the more popular ones in the um, 
crowded space of 90s Nine Inch Nails fan sites. And um, I went on to um, art school um, when I graduated high school. I went to New York to go to art school and kind of left all my fan sites behind, but they were still up there. And Nine Inch Nails was looking to build their first official website. They didn't have one. It was pretty rare for a lot of brands, especially bands, to have their own websites yet. And they wanted a fan um, who was really familiar with them with Nine Inch Nails to kind of come down and be their kind of fan on the ground, so to speak, to document what was going on down at their studio in New Orleans and operate the website. And um, they found my website uh, along with some other people who had done them. And I went down and interviewed and Trent and I headed off and suddenly it was like, hey, mom, I'm uh, quitting college and moving down to New Orleans <laughs> to uh, join a rock band. So. Holy oh, shit. Oh my god. We one dream, but also I feel like a parent's worst nightmare, but like <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an interesting conversation, but um yeah, I didn't even make it through one year of art school. <laughs> wow. Well, Holy shit. it seems to have worked out pretty well for you. <laughs> Turned out all right. It's been yeah. all right. Um, that, that's how I escaped student debt, too, because I, I'd, I'd gotten uh, scholarships just to get me through the first year. And then after that, it was going to be just a big nightmare that I hadn't figured out yet. And so thankfully, I was snatched away before I got in any debt. Wow. Um, again, also amazing. Yeah. Like, dream situation. Someone realizing your talents and you'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't have to go to school. Fuck it. Ugh, amazing. Um. So then that transitioned into doing like um some of the, the cover art design for like with teeth. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, pretty quickly, uh, I came in when they were working on the fragile and um, David Carson was just doing the design for the fragile and I was starting to do some like minor design elements uh, on the web and it kind of just like Trent started to trust my creative instincts more and more and then started just you know he really likes to do things in house as much as possible and uh, started to just hand me projects being like hey we need a um, you know we need to make a single uh, cover with these pieces of art can you just can you put it together I was like yeah I can put it together and I made something and he's like hey that's great you want to do the next uh you want to do the next release? Like, make your own artwork? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes, please. And so, um, I, I started to just have more and more creative roles, um, in the organization until, you know, by the early 2000s, I was, uh, the full creative director in, in charge of, um, pretty much everything visual, um, that went out for so the band. That's awesome. Yeah. It was really cool. Wow. That's amazing. It, it, it kind of leads me to, um, I'm going to fanboy out a moment. My first <laughs> Nine Inch Nails concert was the Light, Lights in the Sky yeah, yes. tour, which, um, because that was the first one that ever came near me, because I spent most of my time in, in like Nebraska. And so you finally, they finally came, and I understand that you worked on, on that yes, as well? Yes, yes, I was the art director for that. Um, that gets uh, thrown out a lot by fans as the, uh, as the kind of their pinnacle Nine Inch Nails tour experience, because it was... At the time, it was very revolutionary, the technology and stuff we were able to employ into it. Yeah. How did how did you go about getting... Because like, I, I just remember being blown away by like Echoplex with the, the board in the back and, and the, the the light screen that would go down where it would track where people were when they yeah. were close to it. How did that all come together? We, um, we got connected with this company called Moment Factory, who um, at the time, they were mostly known for designing Cirque du Soleil stage shows oh, wow. they're based in montreal and they they do immersive um, experiential type stuff and we met with them after someone recommended them to us because we wanted to really up the ante 
with what we could do at a live show. We'd experimented um, with our lighting director, Roy Bennett, on a couple of the previous tours with layers of video screens um, where we had kind of translucent screens that created a, a depth of field. Mm. And it was one of our favorite effects. So we wanted to go full on with this tour with three layers of video screens that you could see through. Jesus. So we, we got Moment Factory on board and they came with a whole bag of custom tricks that they build and started showing us all these sensors and, and you know, thermal cameras and all kinds of stuff that they could use as inputs to, to create video. And then we had one of the most um, incredible like, creative processes uh, in those production rehearsals with me and Trent and Roy Bennett and Moment Factory all just sitting around experimenting with video and with the screens, moving them around, what we could do, check, checking out the sensors. And we gradually started to build um, a show that had like just one new trick after another and, and really, really built up and grew and kept changing and, and kept you on the edge of your seat for the whole show. So like the, the Echoplex thing was, was actually a sensor that created, that wiped back and forth really fast in front of the screen. Mm -hmm. And so when, um, when Josh, the drummer would reach to push a button, it would cross the field of that sensor and the sensor would know where his hand was and match it up with an actual sequencer <laughs> that was changing the drum beats. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there was, there were a lot of, a lot of technical things like that, that I think nowadays there's so much more technology. Like we had so much clunky shit that, that, it would, that, that we had to haul around. <laughs> it was always breaking to make that work. And then like just a few years later, everyone switched over to connect and like one connect sensor could do all the things that we were doing. So it's a lot more commonplace now, but at the time we really put a lot of grunt work into making that happen and no one had seen anything like it. So that tour really stands out for people. Yeah, it, it blew me away. And it's, it's probably honestly my favorite concert going experience period um, just because of all the the intensity of what was happening on stage. It was so cool. And then with, with year zero, the ARG, I remember being glued to the internet and message boards <laughs> through that entire thing. Um, going from finding like the, the USBs with like the, the tracks on it to to every all the websites and everything um how how did you guys go about designing the story behind that we that kind of started with um with trent i remember one time he called me over to his house in la and and said you know i want you to hear this record that i've been working on um you know i wasn't at, at that time i wasn't um spending a lot of time in the studio when they were recording and i, I kind of liked it that way because in you know you start to hear songs over and over and over again in their half finished states and it <laughs> And, and I kind of liked yeah. going in and saying, okay, let, let me hear this for the first time. So he played me these demos of this album he'd been working on and told me about this like storyline. He, he was for the first time writing an album from totally external kind of fictional perspectives, you know, to tell a story rather than him writing from his own perspective. And he laid out this like kind of framework of like this vision of the future that was a commentary on, um, Bush era politics and, and where we were headed as a country and as a planet. And yeah. I was like blown away. Like I hadn't like, I hadn't seen something like this um, from Trent before in, in what he was doing musically. And he was like, you know, I just want to like get your ideas here. Like what, what can we do with this? And, and his first thing that he said was like, I want to create something that's like pouring through like the craziest liner notes you've ever, you know, opened up in a, in a record. I want to, I'm going to take that experience and go beyond it to like bring this world to life. So we started like fleshing out the world and brainstorming more stuff. And 
I was reminded of this um, really cool campaign that um, had been done for the movie AI uh, when that came out. And when AI came out, they were very, um, very few trailers or anything like that. They would show almost nothing about the movie. They're being really mysterious about it. But but in the trailers, there'd be like certain letters and end credits that were read or something like that. And they spelled out a URL. And when you went to that URL, it took you down this crazy rabbit hole and fans started to gather around it and talk about it and start to solve all these mysteries. And it all happened organically. And I remember being glued to that. And I, I was showing Trent all the stuff from that. And we looked up who did it, and it was this company called Moment Factory. No, not Moment Factory. That was from before. (laughs) Forty Two Entertainment, and we met with them, and uh, and they were big fans of Nine Inch Nails, so it worked out really well. And um, they are the ones who kind of architect the whole experience. So we worked with them on like the plots and the stories and the ideas. And then they are like these game master experts of like figuring out all the mechanisms and the gameplay and stuff like that. So it was really cool because it was that was another just incredible creative experience. Probably one of my favorites in my career because they were so down to do the craziest stuff. I remember one time meeting with them in London midway through the campaign and we sat down and talked about, okay, how is this thing going to end? Like, what's the grand finale of this experience? And Trent was like, can we just like, can we like kidnap some people and throw them in a van and like take them, take them to like a warehouse where there's like guys with guns. And, and then we like play a, play a show in the basement. And then like the SWAT team comes and drags us out and chases everyone like something like that. And they were like, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And we do it. (laughs) And there's, there's video of it online. If you look around where we actually got these kids to, who were playing the game to sign their life away (laughs) and there's like and get thrown on a bus with blacked out windows and taken to this warehouse um in in downtown la and um all this crazy shit happened you should look up the video because it's pretty phenomenal and it's all it's all real as far as the people who were experiencing it were concerned and we actually got stunt people to come in and burst into this room where Nine Inch Nails was playing this show Jesus in a basement Christ. and and throw fake tear gas. And uh, our guitar player, oh Aaron God. North, he was kind of a crazy punk rock dude. He volunteered to let the let the uh, SWAT guys, like, manhandle him. So, like, all these people who are watching this, these, like, fans who got this incredible opportunity to see this, like, really intimate Nine Inch Nails show, they're watching this, and the SWAT team busts in, and everyone's like, get out, get out, get out! And then the, we have, like, you know, people who are part of the resistance or whatever, like ushering the crowd, be like, go, go, you gotta go, you gotta go. And they're all holding real guns. Holy shit. <laughs> like, oh my Because it was from this like Hollywood um, prop guy who uses like real military guns and stuff. And one of them grabs Aaron North from the stage and drags him out of the room. <laughs> and, oh my God. and, um, you know, there was, there was some other great details like, um, Trent had this idea is like, you know, we should have a plant in the audience, you know, in the, the group of winners who gets to go. We've got one of them in there who's working for us. And he's like, you know, make it someone that you'd notice, like a pretty blonde girl or something like that. And it just turned out that the um, the stunt coordinator's wife was also a stunt woman. And she she had long blonde hair. And so she disguised herself as one of the winners <laughs> so that people would, you know, and like chit-chatted with them so they'd like, 
accept that she was one of them and remember her. And then when the SWAT team came in, she was one of the ones who, who was grabbed by the hair and thrown down on the ground and dragged out. So oh, Jesus in the God. moment to these people, it felt very real and like a very serious, <laughs> urgent situation. And um, Oh my God, that's and, insane. And then, you know, it was up to them to go report back to the other fans what happened. And some of them started making up their own fictions. Like, oh, yeah, I was in jail all night. They interrogated me. And then the next morning, we've got Trent's lawyer calling up Trent's manager being like, hold on. I'm seeing on the Internet that you guys threw people in jail last night. What the hell is going on here? (laughs) So that that whole thing took on a life of its own. And, you know, to this day, it's one of my favorite things that we've done and also I, I get from fans all the time like who went through it that it was like one of the coolest experiences they've ever had wow so i um had a professor who was working on it in the arg and it is like the most complicated thing like the puzzles and like making sure everything links up and i was an it's interesting that you guys worked with another company to like help you figure it out because args are so ridiculously complicated and it's so cool. Yeah, we we couldn't have done that by ourselves, and and those guys are the masters too. They basically invented the ARG. Um, yeah, they did that with uh with Halo too, right? With the I Love Bees, that was I want to say them, right? I want to say I Love Bees was their first one before AI. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I think okay, so I I think I might have been too young for this. Sorry, I am a baby. But so were the <laughs> were the like so you would make videos and release them online and kind of like as part of the the narrative of the ARG is that kind of what what was happening or at least or at least yeah i mean there, there were all kinds of things it was, it was mostly a series of websites that were all they were all okay. in the world they were all meant to have come back from the future timeline of the uh, of the story and some okay. of those had videos yeah. and all kinds of different media in them there would be audio clips that cool. people would scan and find secret uh, waveform images in them and um we had a we had a all kinds of media. We had real life stuff. There were murals that showed up in cities that had clues in them. It was it was everywhere, which was really cool. That was one of the things that really jumped out at me was the the uh, the, the spectrograph or yeah, whatever the, spectrograph, the hand yeah. that came from the music. That was just it. It just like it blew my mind how much how how crazy and in depth it went. Yeah. And so, kind of like moving on to high life, but did, did working on this ARG help you? like in building the world on high life jesus high level um <laughs> sorry i was like, thinking of that movie sorry um, that's all right did this experience with the arg help you in developing the world of high level because i mean it's such high level is so like the the world is so like intricate and well designed and well thought out and it seems like you had a lot of ex- it, it seems like you just had so much to say about that world so was working on the arg helpful and world building for you yeah absolutely um not just the arg uh first of all the arg of course and building out the world you know trent and i kind of designed a really deep and intricate world for um you know to utilize all these aspects of it Mm -hmm. in the arg experience but beyond that we continued on to develop a a mini series for hbo of year zero and um, it it fell mm-hmm. apart for various reasons, but I'm really sad that, that that fell apart. Yeah, yeah, me too. But <laughs> um, but the the main um, kind of beginning portion of that process was Trent and I sat down and created an uh, an elaborate world bible for Year Zero. Um, oh. We actually built a, built out a whole private wiki so that we could use to coordinate with our producers and writers and stuff, where you could 
look through the entire world of Year Zero and everything linked to something else, and we fleshed out in ridiculous detail, you know, the companies that were involved in certain things and events that happened and a date and timeline and all kinds of stuff. And building out that, that world Bible was so much fun and such a cool learning experience that that was kind of the first thing I did with Year Zero was built, or I mean, with High Level was build out uh, a world Bible. So there's all kinds of, because uh, I wanted to write something that I knew what the mysteries were and I had all the answers in my head. So I wasn't just kind of mm-hmm. pulling a lost and making it up as I went along and <laughs> hope, <laughs> hoping I could come up with an ending, you know? Um, right. So it was, um, I built out the whole world and, and what was actually happening in it. And there's like, there's like three more layers of shit going on above what's even in the first six issues that, um, you know, hopefully things will go well with the graphic novel so we can continue the story. Cause it, it's got, a minimum of six more issues to go before it gets to the actual planned out ending and the world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes. So that, that was um, definitely what I got from year zero was plotting the entire thing out ahead of time. So can you kind of, um, for our listeners that might not be aware, can you kind of talk about the story of high level? Yeah. Um, high levels, uh, we call it a post post-apocalyptic story because um, it, it kind of uh, was rooted in some of the same instincts as year zero, which is, um, I wanted to tell a story that's very much about where we're at right now uh, in terms of society and politics and, and the world, but but um, you right. know talk about it by way of science fiction. And um, instead of what we did with Year Zero, which was moving time ahead, you know, twenty years or so, in this case, uh, I went hundreds of years into the future and imagined a world where the apocalypse, whatever that might have been has already happened and people have rebuilt society from the scraps and I, I really wanted to employ a kind of um, 80s cyberpunk aesthetic you know something really tactile yeah. and so part of the fun was this idea of moving time ahead to a point where the apocalypse happened after everything was completely reliant on technology so that when it happened you know all of our all of our history, all of our media, all of our infrastructure, every single thing we have and know and rely on was destroyed. And this society is rebuilt from physical scraps and doesn't really have a clear picture of all of human history of what happened. And they've created their own myths around it. So that's kind of the world setting. And um, and we meet uh, our main character called 13, who ends up having to, uh, against her better wishes uh take this child who's supposedly a child messiah um to the last uh city on earth called high level which is where the one percent has uh, hoarded all the wealth and power behind uh, a giant wall in a city in the sky that's only spoken of in myth and that's that's kind of the framework of this first volume which is kind of a a road trip adventure story uh that leads to high level it is like absolutely such a gorgeous um, graphic novel. Um, I know you you wrote it, um, but you worked with three artists on the comic. Um, Barnaby, I'm so, please correct me if I mispronounce any names here. Barnaby <laughs> Bagenda. Yeah. Um, say Nahulapan. Nahulpan. I I actually don't know how to pronounce his name because I've only um, worked with him over email. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry if I butchered that. And then Omar Francia. Um, those three artists help bring this world to life, and it is absolutely beautiful and it's so full of life and like every panel is just so cat like eye-catching um so 
I'm a little bit woefully ignorant about the process of writing a graphic novel, but like, were you paired up with the artist and did you send them ideas or kind of how was the collaborative process in creating the art for the story? Um, well, after I'd kind of um, fleshed out the whole story of the world and, and got the green light from Vertigo, um, my editor, Andy Curry, who's, um, who's phenomenal and has been a huge uh, part of the, the whole process, he... Um, he talked with me for a while about like how I was imagining the art and in my head, I was really kind of looking away from, from like where contemporary American comics are at. And I, I had in my mind more of a seventies um, sci-fi Mobius heavy metal kind of European science fiction yeah. feel. Yeah. And um, after talking with him about that and showing some references, he put together some artists that he knew of that he'd worked with and Barnaby's style stood out right away. For me, uh, it was exactly how I was imagining it, um, and he turned out to be an incredible fit because um, I, I've never met Barnaby. We've only worked together uh, over email because he's he's on the other side of the planet, and um, <laughs> and it was great because it was it was something where I could describe something in great detail, and he'd come back with a rendering of it that took into account everything that I'd envisioned in my head and described to him, and make it better or make it different in ways that I wouldn't have expected. So it was a very smooth collaboration on that front. I, I tend to be very, very descriptive. Like I, my scripts write out every detail of every panel, and um, because I, <laughs> because I'm a visual guy, so I see things visually. Okay. Right, I can see exactly in my head how I want it to be. Yeah. So I was a little nervous about that, you know, at the beginning of like clashing with visions with somebody, but it it worked out really well with Barnaby, where he took everything and made it better. And that's the best you can hope for in a collaboration. And by the by the end, by issue six, I was giving far fewer descriptions uh, than I was at the beginning because, you know, I trusted that he just knew what I was talking about. It was great. Yeah. So cool. um, we also got we got the chance to check out this this collected volume that's coming out in February. And it's um it's fantastically designed. And I love that you had a encyclopedia at the end that kind of gives a little bit more tantalizing details about this world that, that you've created. Now you've also worked on uh, getting an album for people to listen to. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, my a good friend of mine, uh, Stephen Alexander Ryan, who's um, he's in this band called the black queen and they're, they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. If you like kind of eighties um, synth, uh, you know, Depeche Mode kind of stuff, it's really good. Anyway, he, um, him and I have worked on various stuff in the past and Somehow in conversation it came up um, when I was trying to put together uh, a trailer when the first issue was coming out. I wanted to do a little like YouTube trailer to to hype the series, and I asked him like, "Hey man, do you have any like um, do you have any like instrumental tracks or something from Black Queen I could use for this? Because it's got the the appropriately kind of dark '80s synthwave sound that matches the art really well." And he was like, mm -hmm. "Yeah, maybe, but what if I just made something for it?" Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so. <laughs> Because, you know, he, he just likes to do cool shit, and um, we like to do cool shit together. So he made a really cool um, soundtrack for that trailer, and um, we started talking. And it turned out so well that we started talking about, like, wouldn't it be cool to, like, have soundtrack for a comic book? Like, something you could listen to while you read it. And we kind of kept that on the table for a while, and then he he really kicked into gear on it recently. And he's been churning out tracks um, that are that he's been writing and recording while while focusing on certain scenes in the comic book. So what we've got now is um, he's almost done with 
about a 35-track album that's got cues on it for each chapter. So if you're reading the graphic novel, you you skip ahead you know, at, at certain cue points, and the music will stay with you and kind of give you a vibe for each scene as you're reading the comic. And uh, it's it's really, really cool how he's really taking the mood and shifting through different sounds as it goes on. That's so cool. And something that is so like amazing about you as an artist is like you create these immersive experiences. Like I feel like it's never mm-hmm. just one thing for you. And I love that. It's like <laughs> your your art is like an experience. I know it sounds weird to say. It's like sounds it's hard to like explain it, but like you're you're curating an experience rather than just making something and like putting it out there, which I really appreciate. Yeah, if it if I had uh, if I had the budget or the means, I would have loved to have done an ARG around high level. Ooh, you know, that would be so cool. Maybe in the future, because the because the um, backstory and the and the world is is like there's so much in the world bible and stuff that we could play with, but um, I'm definitely trained to think of things as a immersive experience now after yeah. years of working with nails where we wanted everything to feel that way and, and we wanted yeah. going to a concert to feel like it was much more than just seeing people play on a stage and a lot of it was a lot more um a lot more theater than typical rock show yeah and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm very much conditioned to to think of art in that way it's so cool and um so I, when i got to the end because uh, i've been following along with these single issues um of the comic from when you first started it and you the ending of issue six surprised the hell out of me (laughs) i'm not gonna lie um and i i I obviously don't want to spoil it for our listeners but um the with the first volume coming out in february 5th on comic book shops and then february 11th everywhere else um are we gonna see more in this universe one way or another yes (laughs) um okay (laughs) yeah the, the thing was um it was i originally pitched it as a um as an 18 issue uh, contained story. And okay. uh, as we moved along, it, it, you know, it, it turned out that the pacing of um, 22 page single issue comics was a lot faster than I had in my head. And that the movement of it um, was moving a lot faster than I anticipated, which in a good way, you know, it's very breezy. It's fun to read. So it is very breezy. So, it's paced yeah. Well. So my editor and I realized that the second part of the story uh, could actually be told in six issues, so we we remapped our plan to twelve issues. Um, but then Vertigo Comics fell apart after AT and T bought uh, Time Warner, which owns DC, oh, so and um, it kind of threw the future of everything up in the air. Yeah. So um, right now we're gonna wait and see um, what happens after the graphic novel comes out. But if we can't continue it at uh, DC then I will fight to make sure we continue it somewhere else. Cause I, I've been sitting with this full story in my head for like two years now, and there's no way I'm going to leave it hanging out of the way it's left oh, yeah. hanging there. Cause um, that, yeah. that was always the, that surprise at the end there. That was always the way issue six was meant to end. And um, it's, it's kind of the beginning of opening up the like bigger layers of what's really going on in this world. So I, I can't, I can't leave it on the table. <laughs> Right. That's what I really appreciated about the ending was that it um it was a, a surprise flip of what I expected to happen. And then it sets up some really tantalizing things for the future. So um, one way or another, I really want to see how this is going to end. Everyone go out and get by it and read it when it comes out. Yes, please. Your, your, support, will, <laughs> your support will help us uh, move forward. Because uh, like I said, I, 
I wrote the whole thing. So I've got half a story sitting here just waiting to be told. Right. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I hope we don't have to wait much longer to tell it. Do you have anything? Um, what's what's next for you? Do you have anything planned out um, going on with continuing with comics or? Right now, I'm kind of trying to get as much off my plate as possible and spend the the first part of this year in um, idea mode. Okay. And uh, put some pitches together for for comics, for TV, for everything, and uh, just come into uh, some new projects midway through the year. Awesome. So transitioning, uh, what what have you been watching recently, Mary Beth? So two things I'll go through briefly. I started watching the new Dracula show on Netflix, and it is the best yes. thing to exist. Um, it is everything I love about vampires. It is gay. It is campy. It is gory. It is so much fun. Um, I had heard kind of uh, middling things about it, and I was a little bit nervous, but I've only seen it for this episode, but it is so much fun. Um, I loved every minute of it. I was cheering and yelling at my TV. Um, and then I saw Underwater. Me too. Oh my gosh. What did you think of Underwater? I, I just saw that this weekend too, actually. Oh, did you? Oh my gosh, awesome. yay. Okay, what did everyone think? I really enjoyed it. I did too. I thought it was, um, I thought it was a blast. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was so fun. It was. It was like exactly what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, it was a very lean movie. You know, like there wasn't yeah. there wasn't any fucking around. There wasn't some like baked in boring romance or something like that. It was just it starts out immediately and just doesn't quit. You know, and, and yeah, I two minutes that. in and the shit is hitting the fan. Yeah. I know. I love that. I was like, oh hell yeah, we're just going right into. I was like, this movie is going to be like nonstop, like relentless. Yeah, normally those movies have to start out with like a half hour of the person like saying goodbye to their family or like getting divorced Mm -hmm. or some shit. And then they're like, or and it's like, or it's like weird world building. Like, oh, look, we're all friends. Look how much. Yeah, yeah. We are together. And then it. Yeah. Nope. Nothing. Just. (laughs) Yeah. You get introduced to the other characters as she's running for her life, you know, so it's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I. um. I had an amazing time watching it and I was just like, I was very happy for it to have been so good. Yeah. I was and and it's not them. a, it's not an intensely deep movie in it. I, I don't, I, maybe it got kind of knocked by some critics, critics because of that, but I appreciated that it wasn't trying to be more than what it needed to be. And, and I highly recommend seeing exactly. it. Theaters cause it, that's the most effective way. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. it was um, it was quite a, a fun movie going experience, and we we saw it at like eleven a.m. on a Saturday, and I would that's have liked... wait, that's when I saw it. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I would have liked uh, the audience to be fuller, but man, it was it's it's an immersive experience, and I I love aquatic horror. Aquatic horror is my shit, and so to see this movie where they're underwater in a lab, and then it goes into some almost Lovecraftian directions, I loved it. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of anything where monsters are awakened and are and are killing people that's monsters killing things and destroying things that's my shit so and and also i find underwater deep sea uh stuff terrifying yes i am absolutely terrified of the ocean because it is terrifying to me that we are covered in what 70 percent water and we don't know what is going on and we know more about space than we do about what's happening on our own planet and that is horrifying to me and there are already weird ass deep sea creatures under under the water. Who knows? Yep. Anyway, <laughs> and that exists in our planet. Yeah. It freaks me out, 
Anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> it was like a aliens meets the abyss kind of and with yes. the dash of the descent yes. yes the descent yes in terms of like the claustrophobia which like i i i don't have like a ton of phobias but who claustrophobia i was sweating in my mm. seat mm-hmm. <laughs> well and I, and I loved how the uh it was it was filmed to basically close in a lot on people so that we, it even made it even more claustrophobic i mean you already are under the water and it's dark and you can't see anything and then the cameras are so close to people that it just reinforces that that feeling, and it was really unnerving. Yeah, you spent a lot of time inside their yeah. helmets with them. Yeah. Terry, have you been watching anything? No, else? that was the movie I was going to talk about. Um, okay, yeah. cool. I was. Ugh. It was so good. You know, it was so disappointing with the. I haven't seen the grudge yet, but it was like disappointing to see that it, it had such a poor reception. And there's like you know the divide about January horror releases, but I'm very happy that. Underwater was so good for a January horror release. And then we also have Hansel and Gretel and then The Turning coming mm-hmm. out in the next two weeks. So I'm hoping those are really good, too. I'm really excited for Hansel and Gretel. So Yeah, I am, too. Have you seen anything else, uh, Rob? Um, Not that much, really, in the world of horror. I've been watching um, Wellington Paranormal, which is... Ooh, what is that? It's a New Zealand comedy horror it's a. It's actually a spinoff of um, what we do in the shadows. I really oh, want to see that. Sorry, um, I love what we do in the shadows. So I, it's. I don't think it's streaming here yet. Yeah. But um, it's very. It's very much like what we do in the shadows. But it follows these two cops in Wellington, New Zealand, who end up becoming like they're like local town police X Files unit kind of. <laughs> and oh and so in God. in every episode, there's there's one where they're investigating vampires and one where it's werewolves but they're just like the most deadpan like small town cops and so it's got that same dryness to it so there'll be like a you know a vampire like eating someone's heart and and they're like excuse me sir that please don't do that that's very very illegal very very impolite (laughs) you know they're just they're very detached from what what the reality of what's happening and there's a lot of like shit that goes on in the background that they don't even see as they're talking to the camera so if you like um if you like good horror comedy um i recommend seeking that one out I I really I really wish you would you would come here because um, I I the last year's uh what we do in the shadows TV show was so, so good. good but I I really wanted to see this and I, I keep looking to see if it's if it's here yet and it's not and I'm so yeah I hope they get a that. streaming deal going here soon yeah cool um so now that we've talked about what we've been watching um now why don't we go back to the past and talk about the movie that rob has brought today um rob what movie are we discussing the movie is called communion it's from 1989 and stars christopher walken yes and so, boy does it oh boy does boy it. does it <laughs> so the little synopsis that we have is 11 years before christopher walken danced his way into fat boy slim's heart he goes full walken <laughs> In Philip Philippi Mora's 1989 adaptation of author Whitley Stryber's quote-unquote true story about alien abduction. Ostensibly about a man's battle with uh, abduction PTSD, it really just shows that Watkins' weapon of choice is over-the-top hats, flamboyant cowboy boots, interpretive dancing, talking directly to the camera, and making out with <laughs> aliens. <laughs> so, <laughs> Rob... I'm I'm so curious about this movie um, because I gotta say it set me down a fucking rabbit hole. But before we get to that, how old were you when you saw this, and what the fuck did we <laughs> well, just watch? Well, it, it it's cheating in a sense because I never saw the entire movie. I was too scared to. <laughs> okay. But, and the the backstory there is that you know in the eighties 
um, there was a huge phenomena of alien abduction stories and UFOs and all that. And I was like fascinated by it all as a kid. I used to watch Unsolved Mysteries all the time and, oh, yeah. and stuff like that. And I mean, my mom like really liked that kind of stuff too. So I'd, I'd see some of this, all this alien abduction stuff. I had a book about aliens and it creeped me out and I developed this fear of being abducted by aliens. So I'd always think I was going to get abducted by aliens <laughs> when I was a little kid. And my mom, my mom um, was reading this book called communion, the book that it was based on. Ah. And I was already scared of the little gray guys with the big eyes. Cause those are the, those are the big ones in the eighties. They, they, they had a moment, right. you know, <laughs> yep. they did. The grays. Yes. I was already scared of those things. I would, I would draw them a lot. And I was just like, I just waiting for him to take me. I, I just felt like it was coming. <laughs> and my mom was reading this book and the cover of the book and, and f- folks at home, just Google search communion book cover. And you'll see it's, it's the, big face of one of those gray fuckers staring right at you yep. and the cover of that book alone scared the shit out of me when i was a kid because that was the guy that was coming for me he was gonna get me and so when they turned it into a movie i was about age nine or ten uh, when that movie came out and i remember my mom rented it once because she had read the book and she asked if i wanted to watch it and i was like mm, i don't think so and so i saw I saw a good chunk of the movie by peering around the corner of the living room, <laughs> watching over my mom's shoulder. She watched it. And whenever the aliens would appear, I'd freak out and, and run away. So I have this very disjointed memory of it. And it wasn't until later in life that uh, I saw some, some kind of clip or something from the movie later. And I was like, wait a minute, that looks cheesy as fuck. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> so um, I hadn't, you know, I was I was too scared to ever to ever see the complete uh, film when I was a kid, and um, I'm I'm glad this opportunity came up for the podcast because I finally uh, revisited it as an adult and have now seen it beginning to end. And holy shit, it's not what I was expecting. No. I so I had um, I had never seen it, and I had avoided it. And also, like Terry and I talked about getting this one in Fire in the Sky. Mm-hmm. Um mixed up just because they're alien abduction movies and people talking about alien abduction movies that scared them. And I was also terrified of alien abduction. Like I had watched one too many X-File episodes at an impressionable young age. Yeah. And I was constantly terrified. And now I have a UFO tattoo. So I guess I've conquered that fear. (laughs) Well, I I thankfully conquered it, but by the time X-Files came out and X-Files became one of my favorite shows of all time. So I, I I turned my fear into a, into a passion of sorts, but there was, you yeah. know, this was three years before, four years before X-Files, so I was still in a different okay. state of mind. <laughs> I was saying before I started recording, this is like a perfect campy masterpiece in a way because I um, I had a friend who studied camp um, at our master's program, and I learned a lot about what camp is. And ca- the perfect camp is a, is a film or a piece of media that doesn't realize it's camp. So this is my defense of communion being like the perfect campy movie because it's like Christopher Walken being the most ridiculous I've ever seen any actor. Uh, And and it doesn't like, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I just, I I knew it wasn't a very well received movie. And so I was, I was expecting something like fire in the sky, just not that well done, but I was expecting it to be at least an attempt at a serious (laughs) <laughs> movie yes. and and i know they i know they thought they were making something important or something but it just 
it starts out and also worth noting i observed while we were watching the script was written by the guy who wrote the book who was the one who says he got abducted by aliens so he's you know so that explains some part of it but (laughs) but like is that because i was watching it and it's like christopher walken is like free associating like so it just seems like he's just kind of like yelling nonsense yeah like yeah and at the beginning, they like unleashed him. Like I could, it was, I was thrown it was, off right at the first scene because it was I like I had to, po- I had to pause it and say to my boyfriend, "Can you come here and confirm that this is like, <laughs> yeah. happening and, and that like this is the right movie?" Because like it's just him in this giant hat, laughing to himself, going "Knock knock." <laughs> Who's when he starts <laughs> laughing at himself, like and what? He, he starts assaulting his computer and yelling, like, <laughs> yes! "I'm cooking here! I'm trying to cook!" And I'm like, "What yeah. the fuck am I watching?" What? It was like and he's also filming himself some for some he, reason for no reason that it's explained. He's always filming himself, and then yeah, like the whole first part of the movie, I. I wasn't even sure if there was a script or if it, it, it kind of, it kind of felt like they were just like, they gave Christopher Walken a loose character and a plate of cocaine and just said, just go fucking nuts, man. Camera's rolling. Just do whatever. Just, <laughs> yeah. just like yell. Well, my favorite part was like when they show him, I think during the hypnosis in the, the ship with the aliens, him just yelling at them. Are you old? Is <laughs> my fa- I was like, is that was what I kind of clicked in my head that this is a perfect movie because it is absolutely it, batshit crazy, and Christopher Walken is like most of that. But then like the script is just nonsensical and it is gorgeous. <laughs> and and their interpretation of um of the abduction and the scenes that they stage yes. around that the dance there he's putting on masks and taking off masks and talking to himself there's that like vaudeville version of himself or something and well, then yeah and, and the little kids yeah the, the kids there's like they're running a alien daycare and he's like hanging out shirtless with playing with babies and then they all have a dance party and it it kind of turned into like if Roger Corman tried to make a David Lynch movie, or yes. Something, oh my know? god, that is oh god. that is the perfect exa- that is the perfect way to describe this. Because like I'm just sitting here watching him naked between cloaked aliens, and he's like, "Here I am, I'm naked." <laughs> and then can we talk this over when the probing is about to happen? <laughs> yeah. And like, what is even at? What am I even watching right now? And then he leans over and kisses one of the aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's just so <laughs> surreal. And, like, I guess my thing is, because, like, Whitley Schreiber, like this, like we said, it's based on a real person, a person who has written quite a few books, like mm-hmm. fictional books. Um, like, and then he wrote this account of him being <laughs> visited. Like, I think he didn't really necessarily call it, he didn't necessarily call it abducted by aliens, but it basically was abducted by aliens, but he ta- called them the visitors. He wrote the script, like you said, Rob. So like was he is he really that weird? Or is Christopher Walken just being weird? Like what is this guy like? Or is he does he fancy himself, you know, an, an auteur who who who's um you know, his personality is so big he wanted to like convey himself as a character, you know, this writer character. I but it guess, the yeah. the result was like very very much the opposite of something like um a close encounters where you have this very grounded yeah. understandable family man character who gets brought in to this this completely um surreal and otherworldly situation in this case it's like from the beginning this guy seems like he belongs on a spaceship like <laughs> I, I like it and it makes it really creates a weird energy in the film where i was i remember saying to steph while we were watching it like I don't even like. I'm not afraid for this guy being abducted. I feel like he's gonna go up there and do stand up comedy for the aliens. And then he did. He basically did. He did. And then he did. And that was my thing. I was like, I can. 
So, like, in the first time you see the alien, like, peeking its creepy little head around the corner, I could see why, as a child, you'd be terrified. Because as you're a kid, you have, like, no concept of what is happening, like, as much of a concept no, of what is happening. No, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, this movie is terrifying, yeah. you know? Yep, exactly. And, like, that totally makes sense. But, like, because when I, that first part happened, I thought, okay, like, that's pretty creepy. But it's, like, the tone of the movie is, like, there's no tension. No, It is just, no. like you said, like, he is, he just is one with the weird. And, like, there is no, like, destruction of the family unit. The unit of family is already, like, falling apart. Yeah, he's already, <laughs> he's already totally weird. His, his wife hates him, it seems like, for, for half of it. And then... <laughs> they just... They are so yeah, good. like the screaming and the shoe throwing. I was like, wait, what is this? She's get, she's getting mad at him for being afraid of the time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then man. okay, what's up with the little blue guys, the Ugnots or whatever they were? That, that I mean, those were so ridiculously corny. They're like from Red Dwarf or something. They just it completely yeah. immediately took me out of the scenes. These little blue goblins. But it made it a lot funnier. <laughs> I I don't even I don't even know what to say. Like I, I when I was when I was a kid and I saw this, I I always get this one when I was a kid and fire in the sky confused. And I have like this this hazy memory of because I've seen both of them and I had this hazy memory of 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 both of them that sort of like came together. But I remember I, I specifically remember the scene um, and and I sat there and I was like, oh my god, I remember this when Walken is in bed and the small and those small people dressed in robes come in and carry him away with his wife like just shocked in bed staring as they drag him. Yeah. I, I so there's like images of that that like just linger in my mind from this movie. And I remember being terrified of it as a kid too. But man, what 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 <laughs> I'm so glad we got to watch this movie. <laughs> I really think it it deserves more uh, appreciation from the uh, from the camp crowd for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that it, it hasn't um, gotten a bigger camp following, and you know I, I know I was reading because like I said this sent me down like a rabbit hole and i remember i was doing doing some digging and i know that that whitley was not happy with uh christopher walken's performance of him oh really um yeah he he said that it made him look like a dick and i'm like well <laughs> i that's i think that's like the least of your worries because his yeah, performance seriously. it's almost like he's making fun of him like yeah there, there's like a sense of yes. of like yes. this whole thing is just ridiculous it's a farce and so that feels kind of like how he's how he's attacking the character yeah and i i mean even if even if walken hadn't been so ridiculous the the scenes towards the end like when it turns into like the most expensive sting music video that year or something just <laughs> like smoke machines and and dancing and like him just posing shirtless and and masks and babies and just like <laughs> what in the hell like i i I'd love to read how that played out in a script yes, form, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and and even towards the end when like it almost kinds of terms like I was I wrote down slam poetry. Yes, there's like shots of like of of him and his wife that are like talking, addressing the 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 camera, and they're like, "There are many faces of God, masks <laughs> of God, evolution response to a cause." Like they're just saying these weird ass things addressing us directly. <laughs> yeah, and I I literally made the joke uh, at some point. I said like. Wow, open mic night at beat poetry or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. That's what it, that's what it sort of feel like when he was talking um, in the hypnosis. And yeah, that weird scene at the end where we weren't sure if it was just filmed weird and they were supposed to be talking to each other or if they were actually breaking the fourth wall and talk. I, I have no fucking idea what was going on there. Yeah. 
and so but whitley himself is is an interesting character um in real life because like i when i went down my rabbit hole um he he was talking about how these two people put like an implant in his ear and they kind of address it in the movie and his he still says that it's in his ear and that it's kind of what has helped him write where his ear will turn bright red and (laughs) he'll start to like see words in his eyes and he'll just start writing it down wow (laughs) and he but like the thing the thing is is that like all of these incidences that he talks about always happen either at night or at like 2 a.m and it it reminds me of like the the people that that suffer from hypnagogia or sleep paralysis where it's like they have like those um those hallucinations when you're like in that in that moment of waking and sleeping because every single time he talks about anything that has to do with like the visitors or he has this other other book that he wrote about the mat the key the master of the key or something like that where a man walks to his hotel room at 2 a.m and tells him that we are stuck on the earth because the child who would have understood the secret of gravity had never been born because his parents had been killed in a holocaust that's a direct quote good lord but like all of this is always happening at 2 a.m or 3 a.m or 11 p.m and i'm just like dude you have a very overactive imagination yeah um yeah and that always <laughs> freaks me out well because i had a thing for a while where i woke up at 3 a.m every night for like a month I remember you talking and like about that. i had heard about that ha- i've talked about this before on the podcast but like that i remember watching like alien movies and hearing like that happens with alien abduction so like i got fr- i don't i don't i do not think i ever got abducted by an alien but like i was so paranoid i was going to get abducted by an alien <laughs> because of that and also striber um he took over hosting, um, I think, Coast to Coast Radio. Yeah. Which is, again, like, usually a lot of people share, like, paranormal stories on Coast to Coast Radio or yeah, Coast to Coast Radio. So, I mean, like, this guy went from writing, like, f- horror fiction. I mean, he wrote Wolfen just... and the Hunger. Yeah. Just, like, to complete. Yeah. I, I didn't realize he was the same guy that wrote The Hunger. That's crazy. Yeah. And he wrote The Day After Tomorrow. That movie, like really? the book that was huh. uh, that um, that movie was adapted from. Yeah, he wrote like it was like something about the coming superstorm or something like that that he wrote with Art Bell, um, the guy that uh, hosted um, Coast to yeah. Coast, and then uh, what's his? I can't remember the director's name, but the big director of that movie, he he read it and then he adapted it into the Day After Tomorrow. <laughs> That's so wild! What a what a wild person yeah. and what a wild life. Well, and then like. I, I know that his uh, his wife passed away, and he's he says that she still communicates with him through other people. I mean, like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, I guess, like, live your bliss, my dude, if you're happy and not hurting anyone. Right. I mean, like, I guess joke's on us. Like, he wrote a successful book, and people will talk about him. And it was Yeah, a I mean, movie. that's quite a career of, of books that got turned into movies. Yeah. Right? Weird. What a strange movie. But I'm so <laughs> glad we got to watch it because like I just now I want to show everyone this like ridiculous film. Yeah, that would that would do well with like a, you know, a draft house screening or something. Oh, like yeah. That. Hell yeah. Yes. Oh, that would be so, like a good midnight. Yeah. Like, a good midnight movie. Yeah, for sure. Oh, with like I want Christopher Walken. In my ideal world, Christopher Walken would be there <laughs> to explain his process of to how lead he us became through. Whitley Strive. <laughs> because I need to know. I just need to know everything. I, I'm also surprised it doesn't get more attention because it's 
it's one of the most walkany performances i think of his entire career like it's just like it's what you think of when you think of a parody of christopher walken yes exactly and again i like you said i had like how is no one talking about this all the time as like the most ridiculous horror alien movie and i wasn't i don't even i guess it's a horror movie it just did not feel like a horror movie at all watching it no no it felt like um avant-garde <laughs> like 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 terry called a performance center yeah. last night because i was texting him i was like terry what the shit is this and he was like wait till you get to the interpretive <laughs> yeah. dancing and i was dying and but he said it's performance art i was like you know what you're it's right like it a, is performance it's like a, art. it's almost an off 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 broadway one man interpretive show you know <laughs> about his alien <laughs> oh experience <my> <laughs> Yes. Oh God. Can we wait, Rob? Can your next project be adapting this <laughs> movie into a one-man Broadway show? <laughs> yes, please. Only if Walken will do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I bet he would. Maybe. What else uh, would he the, do? The whole the whole thing done in beat poetry, of course. Well, oh my God. Is there any other way? Really? Yeah. <laughs> no. And then uh, he has to be naked, wearing one of his giant hats. <laughs> <laughs> Those hats. Those hats. The hats are so funny. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, so do you guys believe in, in alien abductions? I don't think I do, at the end of the day. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I, what about you, Mary Beth? I don't, I'm, I'm always the weirdo. <laughs> I do. Like, I'm the weirdo that believes in ghosts and believes in demons. I, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I sound like a crazy no, person. It's a, I swear it's okay. I'm not crazy. I just, I, like... You know, there was a... I just, um... I, I'm kind of the I'm the I want to believe category, but I I just mm-hmm. can't yeah. without any any kind of evidence whatsoever for any of these things, you know. But yeah, I remember I there was a great XKCD strip. Um, oh, I love them. Some years <laughs> ago, that that made a point that I, that I couldn't get out of my head, and it was um, it was a graph of showing over the years um, in in the year in the two thousands the rise of the amount of the population that's carrying cameras with them everywhere they go, every waking moment of their lives. And the caption was basically in the last, in the last 10 years, without anyone really noticing, we've basically concluded that there are no flying saucers or ghosts or Bigfoot or anything because we, you know, we now have all, we now have cameras with us all the time. It's not like one guy happens to have his film camera out to catch a second of Bigfoot. You know, we'd know if he was there by now. Well, and, and let's be honest, if someone was being abducted right now, they'd be live streaming. <laughs> totally. Alien, te- alien technology is cannot work, and it does not work on human technology. <laughs> <laughs> I see there's a lot more to be explored here. <laughs> I know. It's just like, I don't, I think... Like, if I really, like, think about it, I, I know that it is very, like, unlikely that it's actually true. But, like, there's part of me that's thinking, I, or maybe it's, like a, like, a more desperate side of me that's, like, there has to be something else out there. But then at the same time, like, why do they want to pick us up for a hot second and then drop us back down? You know I'm, what I mean? I'm more inclined to, I, I definitely believe that there's there's alien life out there. And... And it's not unreasonable to think that they've observed us yeah. in some way if they have the technology to do so. Um, I just can't imagine what they'd even gain yeah. from picking a, picking up a random guy and probing his butt. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think they're as obsessed <laughs> with butts as uh, as uh, all the yeah. alien abduction stories. I'm not. I didn't even sure on a medical level what you'd get out of that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. I, I, that part, I'm like, you guys, I think took this a little bit too far and just made this about your own fear of like 
homosexuality in like the weirdest way possible <laughs> i mean all of these like abduction stories basically boil down to a fear of, of male rape is basically yeah. what mm. they all end up being like i was probed i was and everyone's yeah. like oh my god how oh I mean, it is yeah. a violating thing to think about, but again, like the stories are always about that, and it's like the most humiliating thing the character could ever experience, and it's just very interesting. I, I kind of, I kind of like that that they made they made that into an absurdity by the end of the movie when he made that joke. I just couldn't believe it. But he's like, "Hey, can't we talk this over?" <laughs> right. And the probe is literally a hose. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are they doing? I know. But then, like, they kind of make it like in a weird, like, weirdly seductive. I've seen like lying spread out on the table. And it, yeah. Like, the alien is slowly co- like, wow. Yeah. Pornographic. But t- Terry, do you believe in alien abduction? I I don't. Um, okay. I do think that there are that there is intelligent life out there. I mean, how how arrogant could we be to not? But I don't think that people are necessarily being okay. <laughs> abducted and probed. Can I tell a story first? Yeah, of course. Not about me, but my friend, my friend Bridget, who came up in Jurassic Park episode, she mm-hmm. told me a story that she, she thinks she was abducted by aliens. And it is oh. my favorite story because she was driving home with a, with a friend. She was not by herself. They are driving home from a birthday party. They're going from like a bar or some like event to a house. And they were driving and saw a light and they're like, well, that was weird. And like they got home and everyone was freaking out. They're like, where have you been? We've been looking for you. It's been like 12 hours. They're like, what are you talking about? We were only gone for like, like we, we followed you home. It was like 10 minutes. They lost like 12 hours. Oh, wow. And they don't know how. We're at 12. I don't know if it was that much, but they lost like hours and people were worried about them and they have hmm. no idea what happened. So that... To me, is really creepy, and I also am just like, I am very gullible <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. Not even gullible, but just like I am very willing to be like, <laughs> yeah. hell yeah, that yeah. happened to you, rather than like a skeptic. So I don't know. I, yeah, I think I've but, become more of a skeptic as I've gotten. You know, I, I used to, they used to want to be. I was yeah. so into all that stuff when I was younger, and and I just, I just can't make it reasonably work in my mind. <laughs> you know, I want, believe me, I want it to be there. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm ready for someone to come out and be like, look. Here's proof. There's aliens. They walk among us. Yes, let's go. Lizard people, let's do this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I'm a weird... I, like... I love cryptids. I don't... I, I Those I don't... I do not believe in cryptids. I just, like, jokingly believe in them. But I love the idea of cryptids. So... Oh, same. Uh, I just pretend that Bigfoot is real. It's all... It's all a gr- fantastic fiction to dive into. Absolutely. It really is. It's awesome. Cryptids are the best. Yeah. I agree. Um... <laughs> Anyway, should we start wrapping up? <laughs> now that we went on a tangent about Mary Beth leaving an alien abduction. <laughs> uh, it's a good story. It's always, me. it's always me believing in the demons. Like, oh, <laughs> oh well. Someone, someone's got to do it. I blame your dad, right? I blame my fucking dad, for real. <laughs> okay <laughs> well uh, thank you rob for uh for joining us to talk about the camp classic communion uh that everyone needs to go out and and watch and experience for themselves so where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming um, up you can find me um on twitter usually talking shit or yelling at uh, republicans uh, <laughs> Woo, uh, twitter! i'm uh, i'm at rob underscore sheridan uh i'm also at rob underscore sheridan on instagram where i mostly just post art and uh, coming up for me, the, the main thing is the graphic novel high-level release uh, next month. And I'll be doing some 
giveaways around that and uh, some signings in my area and um, hopefully getting the score out. We might even do a vinyl of it. So there's a lot lot coming up next month. Hell yeah. That's awesome. I really hope you do make a vinyl because I I want it. I want it too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, the, the, the few tracks that um that that you you shared with us are are really really good i can't wait for people to hear that yeah, yeah. they're really killing it the, the vibe is so cool um and there's some there's some real like dark weird mandy sounding stuff for the end chapter that i've heard uh, recently yes. that's just great oh, so yeah very excited about that um so listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you what was your experience uh watching communion a couple people tweeted at us with very brief sentences saying oh my god that movie and talking (laughs) about how it scarred them so we'd love to hear from more of you about what your experience was with communion either as a kid or now um you can send us an email at scarred for life podcast at gmail.com and we might feature you in an upcoming episode you can also reach out to us on twitter i'm at mb mcandrews and i'm at gaily dreadful and make sure to follow us and tag us on at scarred podcast and don't forget to review rate and subscribe particularly on itunes Thank you to Steve Brunel for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our intro music. Um, Thanks, everyone. Stay creepy. And until next time. When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break. The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make. You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that. You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap. You could build yourself a homemade scratching machine. Or use a piece from your chest set. Go ahead, grab the queen. Scratch like a DJ with your record player. A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer. Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways. Thanks to scratches from the California lottery, a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. 
I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.